Hi, this is Legal Questions. I'm Martin Dillon. This is a podcast where we discuss, discuss questions from listeners. Don't necessarily answer them, but I will discuss them. Why is that? Because here on the podcast, we provide general information only about the law, not legal advice or a substitute and should not be relied upon as such. I'm getting the disclaimer out of the way right at the top of the podcast today. No decision, action, or inaction should progress without taking specific advice from a lawyer. And please see the terms and conditions at questions.legal for more. I don't know, am I in a paranoid mood today? I just wanted to get that out there right out of the gate. I don't know. Well, I've actually got actual questions from the outside world world to talk about today. If you have a question, though, you can email ask at questions.legal or you can make contact through the website for legal questions the website is questions.legal questions are anonymized for the podcast so names are not mentioned and all contact is subject to the terms and conditions on the website which reiterates the disclaimer all right well i thought that we'd uh, we'd shake things up a little bit this time on the podcast round three i'm not using the baby that i had as a as a prop <laughs> for the first two episodes i i dropped prop baby no i didn't i didn't drop prop. I, I i dropped him from the episode what happens was i i put him down well <laughs> he's i know what you're thinking he's not a horse with a broken leg or a dog with cancer i mean i mean i put him down on his bed to sleep. I'm recording the podcast at a time other than a Friday night, which isn't really the best time to do a podcast, is it? End of the week, tired, other people are out having fun. What about me? Look, let's get right on with it. Let's have a look. Oh, and that was right. I could, (laughs) I listened to that episode too. Oh my goodness. For a, a professional speaker, someone who gets paid to go to court and speak words i must say the podcasting uh, atmosphere is pretty different and rewinding and listening to it look i will make you this promise okay when i'm using an example that features specific things i will do my utmost to uh to keep consistency with what i'm talking about i think i started talking about a, a curtain when i was talking about uh Kantianism in the last episode and then it became a sheet and then it did it go back to becoming a curtain again um sorry i'll try and uh, keep those consistent for this one strike three here we go all right so yeah actual questions for this episode i uh, approached a buddy who works at uh, what we call a um uh, a community legal uh, service community law in New Zealand and what that is is um, it's a facility that's sponsored by the, the community and to an extent by the government and people go there for free legal advice which is great because a lot of people out there can't can't afford their own legal advice I I don't do much of that these days for for two main reasons number one uh, 
<laughs> baby and and family. You, you tend to do it outside regular working hours, such as on a, a Thursday or Friday night. And number two, oh man, people kept stealing from me. It was amazing. You'd, you'd come in to a free legal clinic provided by a lawyer who's yeah, doing this on his uh, on his personal time, and, and steal stuff. You know, I mean, not not expensive stuff, but yeah, you have pens and and papers and the the things that you take in with you. I couldn't believe it. You know, having to have one eye in the back of my head whenever I'd uh, turn around to check the computer or something like that. Um, I'm from Hamilton. This didn't actually happen in in Hamilton. This was in another. Uh, center in New Zealand but um, after a few of those I just I really got down by the uh, the sense of entitlement of some of the people who were coming in you know free legal clinic outside the normal hours the guys volunteering their time to to put it on and that's not enough they have to take something more away from you than the uh uh, away from the clinic than the advice that was uh, meted out there. Never mind. Never mind. Hey, look, we're doing this now, so I don't have to worry unless someone breaks into my house. <laughs> Let's hope that doesn't happen. All right. Look, if you have any issue with anything I've said, number one, I'm sorry. And number two, um, you can send me an email and ask me to address anything that you thought might be inaccurate, clarify anything that I've said, um, or, or go deeper into a particular topic. Very, ha- very happy to do that for you. That's what the podcast is all about. Um, and often speaking on the fly and trying to cram everything into a, a half hour or so, that's something that's a little bit, that's something that's a little bit new to me. Now, I have a question about consumer protection laws. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean, if you are, number one, a consumer, someone who goes and uh, buys something from a, from a store, buys something online, uh, what are your rights if whatever turns up in the mail, if you buy it online, or comes out of the box, if you bought it in the store, whatever. What if? You, what are your rights if things aren't quite right? What are your rights if it breaks straight away? For example, you know, you, you get a, a skateboard, you take it out of the box, you jump on it, breaks in half straight away. Well, what do you do? Well, first of all, what does it say on the label of the thing? Is it made of no plywood? Um... Sorry, skateboarding joke. All right. Um, what are your reasonable expectations that you would have for the product, first of all? You know, if that um, thing says, for example, this is a children's toy, no, uh, no, uh, no people over a certain weight should be uh, using this product. This product should not be used for certain purposes which actually um, is a label that, not on, I've never seen it on skateboards, but a label that is stuck on certain bikes that look like mountain bikes in some of the the, the cheaper sort of department stores that you have around. You, you look at a, a mountain bike, you think that looks fantastic. Look at the price, wow, too good to be true. And then you see a label 
on the mountain bike that says, don't ride this bike on a mountain. True story. Um, so uh, starting with the, the labels and the reasonable expectations uh, that you would get from obtaining the product and, um, and reading what's, what's stated about it at the time of sale is a good starting point. Now, if um, you were not put on notice that what the product is is something a little bit different than what it looks like. You know, the mountain bike, you can't actually ride on a mountain. If you don't have notice of that and you couldn't reasonably have been put on notice at the time that you, um, that you buy the product, uh, well, then that's a different story because you can't be accused of knowing all this uh, information about the the product. You know, maybe it's made of uh, muck metal rather than proper steel or something like that. You couldn't have known that. You couldn't have known that it uh, can't uh, sustain certain pressures and weights that you would ordinarily expect of a mountain bike at the point of sale. If there was nothing to say, hey, look, you know, this isn't really what it looks like. So then we'd turn to, well, we'd turn to reasonable expectations. The law that applies in New Zealand is the uh, Consumer Guarantees Act. And that gives, amongst other things, a guarantee of um, acceptable quality of a product. What does acceptable quality mean? I should say, number one, and this is a there's a bit of a misconception that I think salespeople quite like to perpetuate. They try and say, well, you know, there's, you know, you can buy these these guarantees or warranties uh, along with and on top of the purchase price. And if you didn't do that, well, then um, you can't come back to us if the thing breaks. Uh, that's a complete fallacy in countries such as New Zealand where there are laws, legislation, so acts of parliament, acts of government, that say, hey, look, if you fall into this category, if you're a consumer of, for example, um, products that would be used in a domestic context, so sometimes that can exclude um, uh, businesses that buy certain products for their business. But if we're just focused on uh, consumers in a domestic context, you can have this consumer guarantee of acceptable quality. And that applies. And that applies regardless of what uh, you are offered at the point of sale, regardless of what the salespeople say. And they, they, and they can come across pretty confident <laughs> and trying to explain to you that, uh, you know, you didn't buy this, uh, this additional guarantee or warranty and so you can't get anything they apply the consumer guarantees act applies regardless of what the salespeople say um so long as you actually come within the, uh, the certain definitions of a consumer in that legislation but even if you point that out they won't uh, believe you or pretend like they won't believe you and i don't know if they go through a special course in ignoring the law or what but sometimes you do have to take things through to the disputes tribunal. One of the common, oh, I, I mean, you can go to a disputes tribunal, you can go to a court, 
I'm thinking the disputes tribunal because the kind of disputes that I see and the kind of disputes that I think my um, buddy at the uh, community law sees a lot of are these kinds of relatively low value kind of annoyances where you go and you buy something from a store. It's not worth, you know, huge money, but it's still uh, it's still an injustice. If it breaks far, far too early, there's some sort of defect with it. And um, you go to make use of your your rights under the law and you get pushed back. So the kinds of things that I'm thinking about are, you know, the, the skateboard example, the, the mountain bike. Uh, consumer electronics can be, um, can be a common one. I've had uh, experience with that when I've had to go to the disputes tribunal to get a, a refund for a, a, a laptop kind of device that I bought and it just died. Now it died, uh, I think it was two years and two months after I bought it. And the pushback that I got when I took it back to the store was, hey, look, you know, you didn't buy this warranty that would have covered you beyond a two-year period. What you got was the standard warranty that covers you for two years. And look at that, it's two years and two months, so um, you'll have to just go away now. And I said to them, well, I wouldn't have bought a a warranty from you. That's not something I do because I know about the law. And uh, I know about this Guarantees Act, and uh, I don't. I think that whole uh, warranty sales situation is a scam. And they have since I've um, since I had that dispute, brought that case, which was some years ago. Now uh, the uh, the government has tightened up the laws as to the advice that you're supposed to be given if people are trying to sell you, basically. A warranty that on the face of it you really don't need. Um, so, you know, I went to these guys and I pointed out that that I had this uh, consumer guarantees protection and that I didn't think their um, device was of acceptable quality if it just completely died after two years and two months, considering the price that I paid, which was a, a premium kind of price. But they said, no, 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 look, we're not going to do anything for you. So I paid a relatively small amount of money and took a case to the disputes tribunal where I won. Because, you know, if you if you pay thousands of dollars for a, a laptop kind of device, you'd expect it to just not completely irretrievably shut down on you and die within two years and two months. Um, but the relatively small amount of money that I paid was something like, I think it was $40 or so, which was a worthwhile investment, I'd say, to get that dispute determined. Um, when, you know, a bit of money over $1,000 is at stake, you know, you're going to lose all that unless you pay a little bit more to go a little bit further, go to the disputes tribunal that we have in New Zealand. This is... Um, an equivalent of what might be called a small claims court in other jurisdictions. Lawyers aren't allowed uh, to represent clients in that tribunal, so your legal costs are very, very minimal. Also, um, the uh, disputes tribunal 
is a kind of a, an investigative body as much as it is a, a determinative one. What do I mean by that? I mean, the judges won't just sit there. They're called referees uh, in the disputes tribunal, but the, the referees won't just sit there and listen to each side and then at the end of hearing the arguments, just make a decision. Often what they do, first and foremost, is see if the parties, so the people who are in the dispute, I call them the parties, uh, can resolve their differences by just coming to an agreement, saying, hey, look, you know, can't you guys just agree to to settle this thing? Agree to a, a settlement proposal, maybe someone makes a concession to the other side's case. I talked about this last time last podcast yeah you, you make a bit of a concession okay well i won't if we can get this settled i won't um insist on on a full refund but i'll, I'll take a partial refund of i don't know 80 percent of the claim or, or something just depending on how you feel your claim is going how strong you think it is that's something that the disputes tribunal referees will try to facilitate first and foremost a settlement deal then they'll get into the guts of the case if a settlement deal isn't something that is reasonably achievable or seems reasonably achievable. And when they do that, as I say, they don't just hear both sides of the case. Of course, of course they hear both sides of the case, but they actually investigate, they ask questions, they probe, they try to get to the uh, the core issues that are involved in the case. And why do they do that? Again, it's because uh, some of the value in having legal representation is to focus the arguments on the uh, rights, obligations and liabilities that the parties have in law. And if you don't have lawyers representing clients in the disputes tribunal, for example, um, you don't have people who are legally trained performing that role. You have uh, what we'd call lay people. So just, you know, regular folks go down to the disputes tribunal with a dispute. They don't have the um, assistance of lawyers. They don't necessarily have legal training trying to explain why they should get what they think that they're entitled to. Um, and because you don't have that assistance, the disputes tribunal referees really need to step in, focus the arguments, try to get to the nub of the case using these kind of uh, investigative techniques in order to make sure that justice is done uh, for both parties. Now, that can all go wrong, and you certainly have certain rights of appeal against a disputes tribunal referee's determination, and some parties, um, they do come to me after a determination's been made, and they do feel genuinely aggrieved at the outcome. And sometimes that, um, that can be fair enough, you know. Look, the reason why there's so many appeal courts in most jurisdictions is because people are, are fallible. They, they're flawed. They don't always get things exactly right. And so in New Zealand, you know, you have the disputes tribunal and you can appeal to the district court in some very limited circumstances. Um, if you had a district court decision, you could appeal to the, the high court and then perhaps the Court of Appeal, and then perhaps the Supreme Court. So there's just layers upon layers of appeal authorities just recognising that, yeah, law is a, is a messy business. It can also be a very technical business. 
There can be a lot to unravel. Um, there can be questions as to interpretation of the law that are difficult to come to a finite conclusion or a, a conclusion that you can be confident with. And if you're a judge dealing with something for the first time, for example, that no other courts had to deal with and you've got to interpret the law and come to a decision, wouldn't you feel better knowing that that's not necessarily the end of it if you got it wrong? I think it's in everybody's benefit to have these appeal courts. However, with the Disputes Tribunal, as I've said, your rights of appeal can be actually more limited than if you, for example, went to the district court where you have far broader uh, rights of appeal. Um, and that can really uh, aggrieve some parties where you end up advising them, well, look, I, I don't actually think that you've got a right of appeal here because the, uh, the ins and outs of an appeal are quite limited and you don't fall within any of the appellable categories. So you just have to live with this decision. And um, certainly some clients, they, they really feel the injustice of that if, for example, they would have had a right of appeal if they'd brought their case in the district court or if their case progressed in the district court. Sometimes you don't have a choice where you go. Uh, for example, if you're the defendant, then it's the, the plaintiff, the person who brings the case, um, chooses which forum, which kind of court to go to, and that often sticks unless there's uh, a bad error in the choice of the forum, the kind of court or tribunal where they go, um, or there's other good reasons, exceptional reasons for going to a different place. Um, so one thing that I've kind of glossed over is what acceptable quality means. I've told you that uh, sometimes you need to go to a, a court or tribunal to get that determined. I haven't actually told you the the jurisdiction of the disputes tribunal, they would deal with, um, for example, consumer guarantees cases up to a maximum value, a newly increased value of $30,000. used to be a lot less, but recently I think the, the government has realised that, well, there's a lot of cases that are below $30,000 but are above, I think it was 15000 was the old limit, so they've doubled the old limit. Uh, you could have taken it up to... $20,000 in the old days if the, the defendant, the other party, agreed that um, it would be best to have the case dealt with in the disputes tribunal. There are plenty of cases that were going before the district court, which is next court up, that um, that, uh, that that were less than $30,000, but more than, say, fifteen or 20000 And look, if you're going to a district court with a, say, $25,000 claim, the judge will just look at you and just say, well, you know, this really is uneconomic to litigate, to argue about in the district court with the use of lawyers. And that's for the reasons that I think I've touched upon in a previous podcast. And it's all to do with money and costs and the ability to, um, uh, to recover your legal costs from the other side if you're successful. Lawyers can be very expensive and if you're arguing over $20,000, oh, $25,000, yeah, consistency, $25,000, um, 
uh, it's probably not worth the litigation risk and cost to actually see that through. Where's the justice, you might say, in that? Um, Yeah, look, sometimes, a lot of the time, justice has to yield to pragmatism uh, for economic reasons largely. Yes, we have all these uh, facilities for doing justice in New Zealand. I'll stick to what I know. We have all these facilities for doing justice, um, but there are a lot of reasons why people are held back from progressing things all the way through. Ideally, you would have a, a system, I suppose, that was largely free, maybe like the healthcare system that we have here, um, for resolving arguments between people in New Zealand that were genuine. But that's the thing, eh? I mean, a lot of the time you don't actually find out how, who really has a case until you've gone through all these processes uh, to progress a case through the legal system. You know, you've got your statements of claim and your notices of defence and your statement of reply, and then you've got maybe a, a summary judgment application with affidavits and affidavits in reply, and then affidavits in reply to the reply, and then maybe you don't get summary judgment. You go on to a trial, you go through a case management conference, you prepare your witness briefs, you do a discovery process where you find all the documents, all the documents that are relevant uh, to a particular case, whether or not they hurt you or hinder you, you list them, you cross-reference them, you put them maybe in a computer system or you photocopy them, you paginate them, you list the paginated pages on your index, you send them over to the other side, they assess them. They do the same with you. So you get a fully uh, paginated list, you get all these documents, sometimes you can have boxes and boxes of files and you all uh, comb through them, you pay all your lawyers all this money, Maybe there's nothing there, maybe there's something there. You come back, you go back to the court, you say, yes, we're still fighting this case and we want a trial and the judge says, all right, well, I can't give you a trial date right now, but come back in a month or two and um, the court registry, the court officers who deal with the administration will try and find you some trial time. How much trial time do you need? Two days, all right. Come back to court in a month and we'll try and find you a two-day trial. You come back to court in a month. They give you a two-day trial, uh, you've got to summons witnesses, you've got to prepare a synopsis of submissions, legal submissions, your arguments about the law, file those, file a fully paginated list of uh, documents, file all the authorities, so the previous legal uh, decisions or acts of government that support your legal position. You have to file a bundle of authorities along with your legal submissions, your documents, oh, and a chronology, so a timeline of relevant events. You file all those, you go to trial. By the time you've gone through all that process, you'll have spent a lot of money. Now, for a $25,000 claim, um, <laughs> really, it really, really, really isn't worth it. And a judge would, would tell you that at a, for example, judicial settlement conference. Actually, pretty much every time you'd come before the court, the, you'd expect the judge to be saying, really, really, Mr. Dillon, these parties are pursuing this claim over $25,000. You've advised them, haven't you? Wink, nudge, make sure you've advised them that it's not worth litigating this case. I mean, even if they're successful, the amount of money that they will lose, that they will not recover in all likelihood, is going to be more than $25,000. So why are you even here, Mr. Dillon? I'll say, well, it's not me, sir. It's the client. I've got instructions. And and that's right. I mean, as a lawyer, you can't 
make your clients make what you see as the right decision. You've got to advise them what your view of the right decision is, but if they're fully informed, they're big enough and sometimes ugly enough <laughs> to make their own decisions. Um, but for a case that is, uh, yeah, $30,000 or less or even even more than that, frankly, I would, I would tend to recommend clients go to the disputes tribunal if they can and resolve uh, their differences of, for example, a consumer product that has arguably uh, failed on the guarantee of acceptable quality that is provided for by the uh, Consumer Guarantees Act. So, look, for the first time ever, I've actually got the legislation in front of me on the computer, which you might hear sort of whirring away in the background. I'll see if I can bring it up here. What is the meaning of acceptable quality? Which is, it is a pretty broad definition, and it gives salespeople or you know marketing people wiggle room to try and put their particular gloss on a particular situation and say, hey, well, look, you know, it's still acceptable quality, even though the wheel fell off the front of the bike, you know, whatever. Skateboard broke in half. Um, so, acceptable quality. Uh, goods are of acceptable quality if they are as... Okay, and now there's a list, and the sentence, so the sentence breaks off into a list and then carries on the rest of the sentence. So I'll read the whole thing. If they are as fit for all the purposes for which goods of the type in question are commonly supplied and acceptable in appearance and finish and free from minor defects and safe and durable. And here we go. Here's the uh, the part of the sentence where it resumes. Durable as a reasonable consumer, fully acquainted with the state and condition of the goods, including any hidden defects would regard as acceptable, having regard to, oh my goodness, this thing just doesn't end. We've got a list here, having regard to, number one, the nature of the goods. Number two, the price, brackets, in brackets, where relevant. Like, okay, so what, you you got things that you didn't have to pay for and they break and you want to litigate that? Really? Okay, well, okay, the price, where relevant, in brackets, close brackets, and then any statements made about the goods on any packaging or label on the goods, then the nature of the supplier and the context in which the supplier supplies the goods, any representation made about the goods by the supplier or the manufacturer. So that means, for example, if um, you want to buy a certain product, and I'm not going to say any product name, but say you want a certain brand, and then you research that brand on the internet. You go to nameofbrand.com. I don't want to be sued here, so I'm not going to say any specific brand name. But you've got a brand that you want, you're interested in. You find out about that brand on the website, on the, on the manufacturer's website. And it gives you all the specifications and makes you all these um, fantastic promises. If you're in that, and then you go down to a store. Okay, now that store is not... Uh, run or owned by the manufacturer. The manufacturer pro provides the goods to the store, the store sells them to you. But you can rely on the representations on the manufacturer's website, not just any representations 
that were made to you in the store in relation to um, issues with acceptable quality that um, that might arise with the good li- goods later. So um, now, having regard to, uh, we've got that list, any representation made about the goods by the supplier or the manufacturer. And finally, all other relevant circumstances of the supply of the goods. And wouldn't salesmen just love to jump on that one? All other relevant circumstances. I'd bet they'd come in some instances saying, yeah, but, you know, um, we told them, uh, as we always do, well, we can't we can't prove this, but you just take my word for it. We tell them, as we always do, the purchasers, not to rely on anything we've said up until the point of sale. <laughs> um, which, would you believe, actually happens. Now, I, I haven't actually heard that from a salesman, but, in, for example, sales and purchases of businesses, there's uh, big lengthy contracts that get signed up and they have just pages and pages of text and like little 10 point font maybe 9 point font very hard to read sometimes and tucked away in there near the back there can sometimes be a little clause that just says oh and by the way you know any representations we've made to bring you to this point of signing the contract you can't rely on and you sort of think really um so so you're kind of acknowledging that everything that has been said about what you're selling might be just one big con, but I can't uh, pursue justice against you because you've put in this thing that <laughs> that puts the getting conned on me, um, and I'm responsible for, for for being sucked in. Really, um, yeah, uh, that's um, that can be hard, and I know there's cases. Uh, before the courts right now that are arguing the point. And uh, there's a court of appeal decision, actually, that we're... Uh, well, I'm, I'm interested to see come out. It should be coming out in the next, oh, I don't know, three, four months, perhaps, on that very point. Uh, so stand by, watch this space, albeit that that example is to do with a business sale... Um, won't necessarily fall within the ambit of the Consumer Guarantees Act, which is what I've been spending the most time on in this podcast. All right. You know what? I actually had more to talk about, but we've hit 34 minutes. Time to wrap it up for now. I'll come back to you next week and we'll try and um, go over some of the other questions that have that are common questions that tend to come out of those uh, community law centers, according to my buddy. All right, let's have a look. Now, I've covered the disclaimer, paranoid. Uh, I've covered the contact details. If you want to ask a question or complain, you can email ask at questions.legal or make contact through the website questions.legal. If you would like to read about some of the stuff that I have talked about on the podcast, there is a book out there. It was written by me. It's called Civil Litigation for Non-Lawyers, A Plain English Guide to Civil Cases in New Zealand. And that's available on Amazon.com. Currently as an ebook, And the publisher, the publisher is The Legal Drive. Um, they are driving me hard to get out a, a hard copy version of that book. 
for all these very good reasons that I didn't really appreciate, uh, I didn't really appreciate when I signed the contract just to put out an ebook. Immediately put that out. Realized that that was an error. Okay, we're working on a hard copy right now. Now, have I covered everything off? I think I have. Remember the que- the, the website for questions is uh, questions dot legal. I'll take uh, talk to you again soon. <laughs> Hopefully, if I can recover from this one i will talk to you again soon enjoy the podcast take care